I um, was making eggs this morning and first time in my life cracked a rotten egg. Don't know if you ever experienced that, but no. the speed with which the smell hits you and then that moment of slow motion where you watch as this black goop falls into a bunch of stuff that is fine and then ruins it all. Really just set the price of that today. Hello, dear Super Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Super Movie Club Podcast 102. I wish I could do a radio DJ voice. I can't do the quiet storm voice, so I'm going to just drop it. I got to practice that. Today, we are talking about spiritual, agnostic, and atheist cinema. And essentially just movies that grapple with, you know, the central transcendent mystery of the universe and all of perspectives. Who is with us today? Oh, hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Carnal Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. Go to hell. That's appropriate. Good job, Edwin. I'm glad you're, you're sort of just queuing us up, priming us up right there for conversation about other existential planes. My name is Craig. I am the founder and programmer of Secret Movie Club. This week, by the time that you hear this, Friday... We are going to be doing a James L. Brooks double feature. I am a huge fan of his first two feature films, Terms of Endearment, Broadcast News. That's going to be at the Secret Movie Club Theater. Also, a little tip of the hat to William Hurt, who just passed away. And then Saturday, we are doing a Wes Anderson triple. As I was just telling the gang, unfortunately, we're going to do it in the Million Dollar Theater. And then I think they got a mega offer they couldn't refuse. So we are going to be doing it at our theater, the Secret Movie Club Theater. We are doing Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and uh, Royal Tannenbaums. Get your tickets on that ASAP because it's very likely that some of those will have sold out by the time you hear this. And then the following week on Wednesday, this is a very important one. If you want to be part of our open mic short night in May, we are showing Lars von Trier's and Jorgen Leth's The Five Obstructions, which is a great documentary where von Trier gives his mentor five obstructions and makes him remake a very famous 1960 short film he made five times. The obstructions being things like no shot can be longer than 12 frames. You've got to make it in like the poorest of conditions. And the Jorgen Leth, his mentor, really embraces those and redoes his short in really fascinating ways. And the reason you have to attend if you want to uh, submit a short in May is we are going to have a big bowl of obstructions. And at the end of the night, it just has to be one person from your team. But everyone's going to take an obstruction. It'll be things like there can be no dialogue in your movie. Or it could be there can be no actors in your movie. Or it could be everything has to be filmed from an angle that is either upside down or sideways. Or who knows? Uh, we'll figure it out. And then you got to make a short. You got four weeks to make it. Then you come back and we're going to watch your shorts. Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, uh, we are doing Alfonso Cuarón's E2 Mama Tambien on 35mm. I have got it locked. We have got a taco truck outside that is going to be serving delicious. I've tried these too. I vouch for this taco truck. Shrimp tacos and carne asada tacos. And uh, we are now partnering with the University of Guadalajara, the Guadalajara Film Festival. We actually hosted several of their events. I really loved it, and they want to keep this train rolling. So we are going to be doing a monthly event, a Spanish, uh, Latino, Latinx cinema with them. It's probably going to be the first Thursday of every month. They are partnering with us, and it appears that co-screenwriter Carlos Cuaron is going to come join us and talk about writing Itu Mama Tambien with his dad. And we will be doing that interview in English and Spanish. We'll make sure that both Spanish speakers and English speakers understand the interview. But I am really excited about this partnership, and it's actually leading to something even bigger. But that's Cinco de Mayo. Bottom line, Cerveza, Tacos, a really hot, steamy movie that actually turns out to be about spirituality as well, which maybe I'll drop that in. Cuaron's really good about covering his tracks on that stuff. But if you speak Spanish and you're cued into how he sets it up, you're like, oh. Boca de Cielo. The name of the beach is actually, uh, translates as the beginning of heaven or the mouth of heaven and they don't think it exists and then they suddenly discover it. We got our Palm Springs 70 millimeter coming up too. That'll be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, just after that. So if you want to get out of Dodge, go to Palm Springs and see 2001 Lawrence of Arabia West Side Story on 70 millimeter. We'd love to have you. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Go to secretmovieclub.com. Go to Eventbrite to get tickets. We're doing every podcasts, interviews, blogs and most of it's for free we want you to be part of our community all right just uh last week we did a little mini twofer 
that I called our idiosyncratic Easter series because it was Easter and Passover, Easter-themed movies that aren't obvious Easter. I'm a big fan of Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ, but I we had shown it just six months ago. And I, I so what we showed were two Easter stories that aren't immediately apparent Easter stories, but then you're like, oh, it's uh, the story of a saint, the story of a martyr. We did uh, Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves about a woman named Bess in a breakout performance by Emily Watson, who everyone in her very puritanical, male-dominated, religious Scottish community thinks is simple-minded, but Bess is devoutly, devoutly spiritual, devoutly, devoutly believes. And we don't know for the majority of the movie if it is psychological or if she is really speaking with God, but her newly married husband, played by Stellan Skarsgård, gets hurt on his oil rig and comes home, and Bess starts this communication with God, and she seems to interpret what God's asking her to do and what her husband's asking her to do. And you don't know until the very final few scenes what is actually happening, but suffice it to say, it actually goes full-blown spiritual spoiler. And everybody came out of that one in tears, including me. I had to run past Stephen Brownlee into the booth because I was like, Stephen doesn't care about this. And he certainly doesn't want to see a grown man weeping. So I went into the I went into the booth and got it out of my system. And then I came out and people were still crying, so we all cried together. And Stephen kept his respectful distance. And then we showed Robert Bresson's Alhazard Balthazar, and actually can be read secularly, which is great. It's just about the life of the donkey and everybody he encounters. Some people treat him well. Most people treat him poorly. Most people behave pretty badly. But he endures. And at the end of the movie, he too dies beautifully. And I also weep at that movie. Uh, and there's something about enduring and goodness. And we can get to that. But anyway, there are also atheist movies. Very famously, Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, which if people have seen is a very forceful argument for why God does not exist. Stanley Kubrick very famously said, well, God isn't for me, but he made 2001 to say probably the impulse we have when we believe in a higher being, that could be an alien life form that's just, you know, a thousand years more, a million years more advanced than us. And we would impute to that life form everything that we impute to God. And then there are agnostic movies, movies like A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers. I'm actually curious. I can't verify this. I actually think that potentially Joel is probably an atheist. And Ethan is probably an agnostic or on the fence because in Macbeth, you know, is very famously a movie where it exists in a godless or, a, a, you know, a, a world where God is not present. Although you can talk about that. But when you look at No Country for Old Men, which is based on a Cormac McCarthy novel, of course, but a serious man, which asks you, how are you going to interpret this? The Coen brothers have often trafficked in spirituality and religion, but they seem to come from an agnostic viewpoint, ultimately, I think. But who knows? I. I, I was raised uh, religiously, and my experience with religion was relatively positive, and my connection with faith is a personal thing, and my beliefs have shifted dramatically and fundamentally, but I think there's a, a lot to be said about that. So my favorite types of art involving faith are less things that are trying to make you understand the concept of faith in religion and more about the characters and the way that faith shapes them. Not the movie I'm going to talk about, but I, I was really taken with Martin Scorsese's silence for that. I think it's top tier. Scorsese and the way that it utilizes character and faith, where it's never trying to hammer down the beliefs on you, but is only interested in how the characters react to that. And uh, a thing I was really taken with years ago, it's been a bit since I've seen it, so I apologize if I get the details wrong, but it was Ida from 2013. Can't pronounce this director's name, I'm going to butcher it, but it's... Pavel Pizlowski. That sounds right. I should have watched an interview to get the pronunciation. But it's this really stunning and really simple, from what I remember, story. It takes place in 60s Poland, and it's about a young woman who's about to take her vows to enter a covent, and sort of uncovers a lot of stuff about her family and meets someone else that starts to teach her about life, I guess. There's sort of this interesting thing I think of, of a lot of religious stuff does that I think tracks to my own idea of it, which is there's a point in your life where you start to experience culture outside of the bubble of your hometown, your group of friends, your family. And within that, I think a lot of your ideals are challenged. That either cement that this thing that you were brought into was worthwhile to you and is the thing that's going to stick with you or is going to challenge it and maybe shift it and your relationship to it, good or bad, that I think is fascinating. And I think a lot of religious stuff that deals with that can be really cynical or kind of angry addicts. There's a lot of anger within it that I've experienced. I think a lot of filmmakers that were in similar things do the same. And Ida is so interesting because I think it rather than being about like if it's pro-religion, there's like this 
it wants to paint a picture of the emptiness of if you don't have it in your life. On the other realm, if you it's not within it, it paints it as silly. So I think things that find this middle ground of why this thing is so prevalent and important to people make the most interesting things in the world of religious cinema. And Ida is very much that it's about encountering life outside of anything you've known and pairing that with being about a country that's doing the same thing. It's coming out of wars and these understandings about religion and gender and just trying to figure out what it is again when the past behind them is so violent and bloody and how do you pair that with these ideals that you allegedly stand for as a country, which applies to many countries. But A, it's one of the most stunning pictures. It's like, it's one, three, three, and everything is on a tripod until the last shot. And you don't really recognize that until the camera moves. And it's like this really jarring experience that makes it feel all the more powerful. I think stuff like this gets thrown around a lot with pretension as the word. But I I watched a lot of interviews the year this came out. I was really taken with this. It was right after film school that I saw it. And the director talked a lot about how the movie is about the characters. There's not a political agenda to it. It's not about ideologies. It is about these people and their experience. And I think that makes it so powerful. And I think to me, that's the best that things that look at religion can do or that I I tend to turn to the strongest. I feel fundamentally artistically when you make a movie, and this is me, if you come up with a story and characters, you have to let them go where they're going to go. And you can't impose, in my opinion, a predetermined ending or, hey, here's my thesis and here's what I'm going to prove. And it's very scary to make work like that. Because if you're true to certain characters, they say things you don't want them to say, or they do things like life you don't want them to do. And you're like, how do I wrestle with this? But I feel on some level that one of the greatest aspirations of art is to reveal truth, at least as you understand it. And to reveal truth as you understand it means you have to constantly be open to seeing things as they are, which might contradict your own belief system or tribalisms. And that means you have to leave that at the door when you sit down to do a creative work. And I've always believed that. I think it's very hard to do that. I also have a faith, (laughs) talking about faith, that, you know, anything that I have to change in my belief system probably needs to be changed. But things that continue on, then they're probably the enduring thing. So I'm not afraid of it because I actually am a person of faith. But I do think that when you write your characters, like you were saying, Daniel, you can tell movies where someone's trying to lecture you and you can tell movies where someone is observing characters and being true to them, whatever their own beliefs are. And I think it's better. The latter is always better. I think the movie that does the balancing act the best in terms of character-based drama, poking fun at things, but also being sincere about them. I think the Coens, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, may be underappreciated in that regard with what it does, because it's one of the funniest things, but also has a lot of interesting things to say with how characters view it in the time period, and it also just slaps. It's the best movie. And politics and religion is actually handled really intelligently in that movie. But it's played as like a goofball thing, and so it sort of almost undermines the audience where you're like, hey, it's doing this. In reality, I'm like, I think it's doing this. I was thinking about this... And thinking about, like, what does spirituality actually mean? Because I think there's going to be a lot of people, both spiritual and non-spiritual, who say that a spiritual movie is a movie where someone's like, hello, my name is Craig, and I believe in, I don't know why I used your name, because you're a Christian, I, and I believe in the Christ child, and he was the one who came down to sacrifice himself for our sins, and, you know, and I, I think that's probably a pretty limited, I don't think any of us are actually viewing it from that perspective. Totally, but a very literal read when someone hears spirituality, I think about this all the time, they would define that as, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only son of God, begotten of the virgin, like a very literal read of the Gospels. Yeah, you know, I I grew up in a very Christian and very conservative environment. When it comes to conservatism, I've gone only farther away from that as I've gotten older (laughs) at an accelerated pace, if anything. When it comes to religion, I definitely have not turned a corner back towards Christianity. I don't think I ever will, to be honest. But in terms of spirituality as a concept, as an idea to sort of help manage your own life, I find very reassuring and affirming. And I find that finding spirituality in other things is nice, finding these sort of uplifting moments. The closest thing I've had to a religious experience is, you know, seeing movies like opening night with like a full audience and everyone there is 
And it's not just about people being excited, but it's about people literally sort of putting aside all these things in their lives to sort of enjoy this kind of collective story, be sort of taken away by it. And I think the concept of faith is something that I think about a lot when it comes to movies and what faith can mean, because faith isn't just faith in a god, it's faith in anything. The movies that I feel like get closest to making me feel like a religious person again are the movies that make me very emotional. And so something like The Iron Giant, which is like about faith in other people, sort of ascending and and being the best version of yourself. I think that kind of stuff touches me more than anything that's like explicitly about religion when it comes to the positive. I have some more negative examples of movies that deal with religion, but I think I think those fall more into readings that go into more agnostic atheist things. I was raised where my mother's side of the family was spiritually Catholic, and my father's side of the family was mostly secularly Jewish. And in fact, although my grandparents mellowed, it was it's a story for another time, but my secular Jewish grandparents mellowed into agnosticism mostly. And then my grandfather had a full on, like just before he passed. It's a story I tell a lot, but I'm going to save it here. Like came back to God, freaked out my aunt. Didn't it, The whole weird thing happened in the last few weeks of his life. But, and what's more important here is that definitely that side of the family, my dad's side of the family, atheists. And so I was raised both. I actually refused to be confirmed when I was 12 or 13 for people who aren't Catholics. Confirmation is akin to like your bar mitzvah in the church. It's a sacrament. I actually was really unsettled at that time or just before there. And I really I don't want to talk too much about it because it still unsettles me. But there was a girl named Polly Class. She disappeared. She was discovered. Somebody took her out to the woods, did horrible things to her. But she died. She was a little girl. So, you know, it was very hard for me to believe that there was a God who would allow that to happen. There was just nothing that could convince me that that girl's suffering uh, served some kind of purpose. So I became a very vehement atheist, actually. I refused to get confirmed, and I told everybody, look, if we'd been born in India, I'd be a Hindu. You know, if I were in the Middle East, I'd be a Muslim. I'm just a Catholic by dint of the fact that I was born here, and you know, yada, yada. Then, weirdly, I went to go live with a Muslim family in Malaysia when I was 15, and my dad gave me this book, and my dad was always a spiritual seeker, but never really, I think in his lifetime, was always wondering. He was more of like an agnostic who wanted to believe in God. He gave me a book called The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. It was an interview book. And in there, Joseph Campbell said, if you really look at all the world's religions, the stories are all shockingly similar, even Native American stories, cultures that have never touched. And sure enough, he was absolutely right. The Christ story of somebody uh, sacrificing existed in Greek mythology, existed in Babylonian mythology, and existed after that. And weirdly, living with this Muslim family, I saw that they did everything my Catholic family did. Uh, They went to temple. They went to, you know, they did these on Fridays. They did their prayers. And then they came home and they watched Jurassic Park and had a big meal. And it was like mind blowing to me. I was like, oh, oh, well, it's all the same. And it's just funny. We're all fighting about this and cut to when I was late 20s. I'm going to tell this real quickly. And then at that point, I was just I wasn't a believer, but I had no problem with it. I actually was like, I went to church again. I guess I supposedly more looked at it as I love experiencing all these different things. My dad got into Zen Buddhism. I was really into that. And I always joke with people to this day, I'm very spiritually promiscuous. I love Taoism. I love Zen Buddhism. My spirituality is probably an amalgamation. I love Hinduism. I I take from everything. And I also understood why my atheist family saw the world the way they did. Also, they're Jewish. And, you know, when six million die and you hear concentration cancers, how can you expect people to believe in God after that? to see, you know, six million of your people wiped out. I very much, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I've always been very empathetic to understanding how all the sides see it. And even though I've gotten much more comfortable talking about my own spirituality, I never want people to think that I'm not empathetic or that I don't understand. I do think they have truth. So I realize that for me, I almost think that people's spiritual viewpoints, it's like we all live in a big hotel. Some people have a view out on an alleyway. And they look out on the alleyway and they see a helpless bum getting beaten with like baseball bats. And every day they look out their window and they see something going on in that alleyway. Other people just weirdly have this view of the forest 
outside the hotel, and they can even see beyond the forest, and they see this wild-like land and the lake. Other people have views out on the parking lot, and they're just like, that's ah, a parking lot. And so then when these people meet in the hallway, they're like, hey, guys, all life is, I'm telling you, is bums getting beaten up with the bat. And then goes like, no, it's not really that, but it's nothing special. It's a parking lot. And then someone's like, guys, there's a forest, and I've seen beyond the forest, and there's a lake. And the people are like, what is a forest? What's a lake? Like, what are you talking about? And so I've just come to realize, actually, that it's language that makes us think that we're speaking oppositionally. But I actually tend to think everybody has a piece of the puzzle. And when you think about how big the cosmos is and how small we are, what we discuss is maybe 20 to 40 adjectives when there has to be an infinitude of characteristics and adjectives to describe the cosmos and God. But I will say in my late 20s, I actually realized I never lost my faith in God, that I actually believe very profoundly in God. But my understanding of God had just changed. And it's not that God can prevent horrible things from happening. I don't know. It's beyond language for me. But I do believe in that central mystery. And I I do believe in God. And I do have faith. And now I'm a practicing Catholic. I go to church. My daughter's getting baptized next week. But I don't think that that's any different or any better than somebody who's an agnostic or an atheist or someone who is a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Taoist or a Muslim. Or I think we're all coming up that mountain from different paths. But I, I do believe in a transcendent level of the universe. I do think there's something else. Also, I think a big divider is people are like, well, there's when you die and that's it. And I've said this before, and I don't mean to be dismissive here, but I always chuckle when atheists are like, no, people who believe that's just because they have to believe there's something after death. There's nothing. And I always chuckle and I'm like, it would be nice if there's nothing. Nothingness is the same as heaven. If you just die and that's it and there's a cessation of suffering, you've just defined heaven for atheists because all you're saying is that that's it. No more consciousness, no more anything. What's going to be scary for you is if you die and it keeps going and 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 going. And you realize that actually your consciousness continues in a karmic cycle, depending on the choices you make. And that's the thing that either people who just want to believe you go to heaven or people who want to believe there's nothing. I think it's comforting for both of them. And Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that's what that monologue is. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. What it is, none of us really know and we won't know till we get there. But I do think there's something after this life and before it too. So, But I like movies that challenge. So... I love a movie like Breaking the Waves, Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves, because as much as it's a Lars von Trier movie, there's something about goodness and faith and the mysterious ways that God works uh, that really moves me. But I also love a movie. Have you guys ever seen Louis Buñuel's Viridiana? Oh, uh, dude, Louis Buñuel was a committed atheist, born in Spain, raised Catholic, totally rejected it. In Viridiana, this nun... Uh, Viridiana, she goes to live with her uncle. Her uncle tries to seduce her, and he's a foot fetishist. She then brings in all these homeless people into the mansion because the uncle dies and leaves her the mansion, and she wants to convert them all. And the homeless people end up just throwing this big party and orgy, and they're just like, hey, whatever she's about, but now we got this big mansion. And then she's like, why am I not converting these people? Why are these people not? And the whole point of the movie is people are going to do what people want to do. And I think a big distinction we have to make, and I think it's been made, between religion and spirituality. And I know that people do that all the time, but we have to be very careful about it. Religion, as I define it, is the man-made structure with people communally get together to celebrate their spirituality. That can be good or bad. I think people abuse religion constantly, whether it's the Catholic Church bearing child molestation scandals whether it's Connor, what you were saying, people telling me that I got to vote a certain way or like Jesus doesn't vote that way, you know, which I find totally offensive on both sides. Or, you know, people saying you, your entrance into God is only if you buy this set of ethical or moral or political beliefs. And I, I abhor that. Religion is used to divide culture. Religion is used to divide people of race. Spirituality, though, I think is a slippery thing. And I think that there can be very, I would wager Daniel that your parents have a very devout spirituality, whether or not you agree with it. Or Connor, your parents have a very devout spirituality, whether or not you agree with it. The vessel of it might be Christianity or fundamentalist Christianity or whatever. For me, it might be 
Catholicism. So Viridiana, I always love because it's a very atheist movie. But what I love about it is it's these people who think that you can proselytize. Or I don't think you're here to convert people. You know, like Kanye famously said, I'm not out here to convert atheists into believers. Good Kanye. <laughs> Early Kanye. Uh, 2004 Kanye. Just so you know, you may or may not know this, Tarantino was actually deeply religious when he was younger. Oh, wow. At the time of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, still a practicing evangelical Christian which a lot of people don't know, which is why in Pulp Fiction you have all the metaphysical and biblical stuff with Marcellus's soul in the Bible quote. But then he very vocally and famously, kind of Lars von Trier track too, has now an atheist and a very vocal atheist. And I think that Kill Bill might even sort of be kind of a signifier of him moving to atheism. So basically anything directed by Paul Verhoeven. Oh yeah, but he's he's such a weird cat. That's a great guy to call out. But do you know Verhoeven's story? Briefly, someone was talking to me at the Bev about that, how he's deeply like a deep atheist. And he wrote a book about it. As well. And it just shows in every single one of his movies. I want to say Robocop is is a big one. Edwin, you and I talked about this. I'm actually not sure he is an atheist. He wrote a book about the historical Jesus, and his almost all of his movies have Catholic iconography. Robocop is Jesus. Verhoeven said Robocop is the American Jesus. I worship him every night. <laughs> you worship <laughs> Robocop? <laughs> yeah. Finally, Jesus is American. <laughs> <laughs> They finally solved it with Robocop. No, Verhoeven is a, is a very cool director that I like. Cause he, he loves to put religious items in every single one of his movies, either good or bad. Um, I think the only one that doesn't have it is Hollow Man, probably. Edwin, just in your defense, you're absolutely right. During his youth, Verhoeven was for a short time a Pentecostal Christian. Although he is an atheist, he takes a great interest in Jesus. There you go. Told you. Total Rico is a big one, too. Especially with, with, with where uh, Mars becomes like, you know, kind of like Earth looks heavenly. But you don't know if it's a dream or is it real. Um, well, no, there's tons. I mean, if you want to talk about all the religious iconography in Verhoeven, The Fourth Man has one of my favorite images. That's one of his uh, Dutch films. It's his Hitchcock homage before Basic Instinct. But the central character is like a repressed. He dates women. He may even be married in the movie, but he clearly lusts after men. And in one of his fever dreams, he sees this hot dude in a Speedo crucified on a cross. And he goes and he touches his bulge. Whoa. Yeah, very Verhoeven. Benedetta goes without saying. Oh, yeah, most definitely does. It's about Catholic nun and visions. Showgirls. Do showgirls have a lot of religious iconography? No, 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 no. You, you talked about it. You, you talked about how showgirls has that, that religious item in it. You, you were literally talking about it during a midnight movie at the Vista. I remember. Oh, sure. Well, I was saying that showgirls has the Verhoeven. A lot of people sometimes will be like, oh, Verhoeven missed on showgirls with his double. His, his like, text. In subtext, but actually there's a lot of subtext to showgirls that shows a material life is uh, sort of empty, and you sort of see like her ascension to be a showgirl. You're like, what, is, what was it all for? But that's conversation for another time. Elle, which is another Verhoeven movie I love with Isabelle Huppert, she's a Catholic. She's still a practicing Catholic. I'm not out to convert atheists and believer. In fact, I'd rather just have conversations with atheists. I love atheist movies. They really challenge me. Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, you know, made the point you know, the rabbi, who's a good guy in the movie, goes blind. And Martin Landau, who is Jewish, kills his mistress because she's inconvenient. And then he's worried that God's going to punish him. And then he realizes that there is no God. God's not going to punish him and he's going to get away with it. And he does get away with it. And there's this great scene at the end where you see the rabbi who's gone blind Woody Allen, who is trying to, like, figure out his place in the world, and Martin Landau. And Martin Landau just says, you know what? He doesn't explicitly tell the other two that he's killed his mistress. But he's like, you do bad things. And you know what? If you just sort of ignore it bit by bit, you can deal with it, and it goes away. And I got my wife, and, you know, he doesn't say this explicitly, but my mistress is out of the way, and I kept my family, and I keep doing what I want to do. And it's a very challenging way of looking at the world. I've always, like, struggled with what exactly agnosticism even means to a certain degree, because it gets, gets very, like, philosophical. You can't prove a negative 
I think the idea would be that you can't prove that God exists. It's not that you can't prove that God doesn't exist. And so I've always, as someone who believes that, I don't know, I don't know what's going on out there. I still always identify as atheist because I don't like uh, the presumption of agnosticism where it's like, I feel like sometimes people, when you say agnostic are like, well, you'll come around to it, you know, almost. (laughs) Then like agnosticism sometimes feels like wishy-washy. I have firmer opinions than that. But obviously, of course, if God showed up in front of me, I'd be like, here he is. I believe in him now. Um, <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not so devoutly like atheist that I'm like a madman. I think the Coens are interesting because I think agnostic is maybe the idea that, though, but this kind of fits into spirituality. Like, to the degree that the Coen brothers' movies are agnostic, they believe that this stuff could exist and it could be bad. I haven't seen, it's not even out yet, but that new Jordan Peele movie, Nope. There's like a line in the trailer where Daniel Coulet is like, what's the name for a bad miracle? Like, that's an interesting concept is the idea of being like, oh, it's all real, except it's bad, actually, (laughs) which is kind of where a lot of like horror movies, like Evil Dead feels like something like that, where in the Evil Dead, it's 100% there's like crazy you know, supernatural stuff going on and it sucks. That's the HP Lovecraft thing. And it's really hard to go there. It's hard for me to go there because it's a really uncomfortable place to go, which is why I think Lovecraftian horror is so horrific because it's the idea that there could be something, but what it is is beyond our imagination and so antithetical to what humans would consider good and would be so ruinous and horrific and destructive and be like cosmically evil in a way we couldn't possibly understand. I mean, you really feel like I don't even I don't want to go there. And and that's that's that is horrifying. On a more atheist level, I, I wrote down two movies that are about religion, but aren't really. Um, I wrote down The Wicker Man, which is obviously a movie about, I guess, more about religion than spirituality. But I, I think that ties into it to a certain degree because it's it's essentially about one religious person in a Uh, another religious community that's totally inverted from their own beliefs, Puritan and pagan, but both still devoutly spiritual. And the sort of destruction that's wrought out of these beliefs. I was also thinking about Paul Schrader's First Reformed. I really need to revisit because I've had like people say that they interpreted it totally differently. But that to me is a movie about somebody who's religious becoming immensely frustrated that the people around them are using religion as a crutch to be like, yeah, well, it's fine. Like, God's got the world. It's fine. <laughs> like, we don't have to worry about anything. Oh, that issue you have, that's just Satan. Just talk to God about it. You don't have to do anything else. And Ethan Hawke's character, to me, reads as someone who is immensely religious and believes in this stuff at the same time just growing more and more frustrated like no we are being called upon wiping your hands of the world and saying god will deal with it is not i mean even inherently in my understanding of christianity as a somebody raised in that faith isn't what christianity is supposed to be about we're supposed to be shepherds of the earth even if you just read the bible as literature i mean how can you read the flood or how can you read sodom and gomorrah where God essentially kills everything, but like two of every animal and a few human beings because people weren't being shepherds of the earth. I mean, it seems intrinsic in a lot of spiritual texts that you have to embody some kind of agency and stewardship of continuing life for the next generation. I mean, that's Native American. That's every spirituality. And what you just described is sort of a really frustrating laziness. It is laziness because there's no reason why this thing couldn't fit into the other. Part of this might be, and this is like even a bigger concept, is the weird way that capitalism and Christianity in this country have become kind of intertwined in ways that don't really make sense from my understanding of kind of either. Oh, yeah, yeah, (laughs) totally philosophical level and that that is the weirdest thing that totally plays into the whole like not wanting to look at climate change and the way the world's going but how that kind of stuff can't fit into like a scientific thing of like why can't these scientists be like messengers from god being like listen there's a very famous zen story and this is why i find it so important to me And I get very frustrated when people get threatened by other religions and spiritualities. I always shake my head because I'm like, if someone is going to open up to understanding the world, but it's going to be through Islam or through Hinduism or Judaism 
that's great. Let them go on their journey. <laughs> like, why are you so threatened? Because it's not your socio-political cultural thing. And then you say you speak for God, which is the most destructive thing. No one speaks for God. And people should stop saying they speak for God. Only God speaks for God. And anybody who says they speak for God, you, you should be mega skeptical, <laughs> I would say. But there's a Zen story, Connor, where this guy goes to his Zen master. And the Zen master's like, hey, man, you know what? Don't worry about it. Like, God's around. God exists. And God's actually looking out for you. And the guy's like, oh, great. So he goes out into the road. And he's like, this is great. I got a whole new lease on life. And then there's this dude on an elephant and he's coming down the road and he's like, get out of the road. And the guy's like, I don't have to worry about this. God's looking out for me. God's taking care of me. Elephant's getting closer. Guy on the elephant's like, get out of the road. And the guy's like, ah, God, you're going to. And then elephant tramples. This guy breaks every bone in his body. So this guy crawls back to the Zen master. He's like, you lied to me. God didn't look out for me. God isn't around. And the Zen master's like, you idiot. Didn't you hear God on top of the elephant telling you to get out of the road? I've heard a version of that that's the two boats in a helicopter, that someone's drowning, and a little boat comes up, asks to save him. He says, no, God will save me. Second boat comes up. Guy's like, we'll save you from drowning. Goes, no, God will save me. Helicopter shows up, offers to save the guy. He drowns, and then in heaven, he's like, God, why didn't you save me? And God's like, I sent you two boats in a helicopter. So I think they <laughs> used that in a... Uh, there's a good episode of The Leftovers. I don't know if you ever saw that show, Craig. I think you would like that show. People don't know is Leftovers is a show that's essentially about the rapture, but from a totally secular point of view where a bunch of people disappear and then everyone has all their, like some people do interpret it literally as the rapture and some people don't and just like, well, it's just a weird thing that happened. Peak television. Previously, I, I think I was using religion where I meant spiritually because I think a lot of my core issues with stuff come from organized religion and the way it's used. With all the stuff we're talking about, it is weird. There's a singularity that comes with spirituality sometimes that there is a universal correctness to one way that I think is kind of the danger of it and the way that in different cultures have sort of manipulated it to use it against the people. I think we find that in our politics here where it's not that you're right or wrong. It's the way that you're using it to formulate a method to get your way where the person that you are, everything that you represent is not there. And I guess you can argue that with different people, but when you sort of claim this thing as your stance and then nothing you do showcases that is sort of the pinnacle of why I think younger generations have turned against a religion, I think, to a lot of things and have turned more toward personal faith. You mean because of just the flagrantly obvious hypocrisy? Yeah, and it, it's frustrating because all of the coverage around it is that. And so with, within art, I think it's so interesting because it's people, artists coming to terms with how do they talk about their personal thing without it being this hitting you on the head thing because there is no singularity if the concept depending on your beliefs if the concept of god is real if it's singular then every religion is an offshoot of it to a degree so the bible can't be the only right thing because this other religion exists and if it believes in this idea of what a god is then it can't be just from one text the ideas of interpretation and the ideas of you know we've had thousands of years of translations that we can't vouch are the same. We have no concept of what came before than what we're reading now. I mean, that really interesting point is I don't think people are critical enough or skeptical enough to actually question if the current translations have been tweaked politically. I think they absolutely have. I mean, the idea that, you know, you think about patriarchal society going back hundreds of years and we have this religion, which is based around a guy who's apparently all powerful. But at the same time, if you do any little thing, he'll freak out on you. <laughs> well, it, it's frustrating when it's it's not about personal beliefs. It's about the scapegoat of this easy decision, this moral compass for you of right and wrong versus your of what you're trying to be. And the frustrations come from when it's the fallback to why you're doing something. Well, I do this because of this. It's not so much a belief as it is like this easy thing. If your entire life is dedicated to this belief system that you're brought up in and continue forward and there is an idea that's trying to prove it wrong. How do you wrap your head around that? All of this effort that I've put into everyone that I've been around, everyone I believed in and trusted could be wrong. Like, how do you contend with that mentally? I think that's such an interesting aspect to it. How would you just decide if someone's like, you know, these ideas of like, oh, if, you know, Christianity is this one thing and it's not this one thing, of course you're going to fight against it and look for anything, you know, even if it's a cheap shot or someone says it is or whatever, to be challenged is scary. I often find that my creative works get better if I show them to other people 
and I get feedback or criticism. I don't like hearing it. I don't like hearing that something's bad. I don't like hearing that I did something wrong. But when you talk to someone else, you're like, oh, there's another way to do this. There's another way to see this. There's another way. And suddenly a song or a movie or a novel or a painting becomes better because you're letting different perspectives and you're seeing things that you're blind to that other people can see. And I think that it's good to have dynamic conversation and debate because your blind spots other people don't have. And if you're open to talking to people, they'll say things and you'll be like, I never thought of it that way or I never saw it that way. But I think it's very hard, like you're saying, Daniel, if you identify as a Republican or you identify as a Democrat and you've based your identity on that for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, or you identify as a Baptist or as a Catholic, I do think there's a temptation when challenged with a truth to not want to deal with it because it would mean having to totally redefine who you are, your relationship to everybody around you, your relationship to the community, rocking the boat. And I think that living in a state of constant dynamism is very difficult, which is why I think you see as people get older, (laughs) they don't make as many changes after a certain point. It's scary if the things you believe in set a precedent that life ends and there is a good ending and there is a eternal bad ending. Why would you not double? Like, that's horrifying, that concept. And that that's all you know, especially as the end becomes a reality and you sort of come to terms with it. Of course, I go, I, yeah, I get that. That's the worst case scenario, that everything you've done, every decision you've made in life might have this point that just puts you into this, you know, eternal damnation. Like that as a concept is like, it's either the scariest thing or the scariest thing because it's a control method. It's not fair to give those as just the two sides, but I, I think a lot about that, that if that's presented to you, of course, it's the worst case scenario. It's like the ultimate stick and the ultimate carrot. We ended up talking a lot more about spirituality and philosophy (laughs) than movies. But, you know, but that's great. Movies got to be about something. I have a lot of people in my family who are, quote unquote, Christian, but don't volunteer really. Don't give money. Don't really get politically active. As Connor was talking about with First Reformed, don't necessarily put skin in the game, like actually give of their time. But, you know, they'll say, I pray for you or whatever. (laughs) And then I have my atheist family and my grandmother, who was basically an atheist, although she said she was an agnostic at the end. But my grandmother worked at a homeless shelter her entire retirement, went down and did consumer affairs to protect working class and lower class people from being scammed by landlords and stuff. And she worked the phones and she would strike. She was a part of the labor unions. And my grandparents, my atheist grandparents in the 50s, a black family moved into the neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley here in L.A. Talk about an inversion and perversion of religion. They move in. Two or three days later, someone burns a cross on uh, their front yard. And they're terrified. Use, use the imagery of Christianity for terror for black people. So my atheist grandparents get all the neighbors together and they sat on the lawn for a week every night. And as I understand the story, whoever was doing that didn't do it anymore. Because the neighborhood was just like, uh, no, <laughs> these people can live here. And that's one of the most Christian things I've ever heard of, you know? Man, I'm so full of tears right now. You get older, you <laughs> cry a lot. Uh, I think it's a very mysterious thing. And I think I've met some atheists who are more Christian than some Christians that I've met. And what I'm trying to get at, though, in the end, is I think the thing that I've found that's interesting to me is that whether you're an atheist or agnostic or a believer— You tend to admire the people who are humble, I think. You tend to admire the people who give of their time. You tend to admire the people who volunteer. You tend to admire the people who try to be good friends, good family members, good parents. You tend to admire the people who don't judge. You tend to admire the people who aren't lecturing. You tend to admire the people who treat people well. That, to me, is is a beautiful mystery, that the behavior that spiritual people and non-spiritual people tend to admire is the same behavior. So I, I in the end, kind of go, well, what does it matter? God doesn't care. <laughs> like, God's not. I, I understand what people say and that, that you, you know, you read the Bible, like you were saying, Connor, and there's a vengeful God. But, like, I, that's not my understanding of God. I think that if God sees an atheist doing these wonderful things, God's like, that's great. <laughs> like, I'm not an egotist. I don't need my name mention. <laughs> you're, you're living in an action. I'm good. 
So I always loved what Stephen Colbert said, weirdly, a fellow blasphemous Catholic. Colbert lost his dad and a number of his siblings in an airplane accident. And he was left with him and his mom. And people would come to him and say, like, well, how can you believe? You yourself, have ex- you lost half your family or more than half your family in an airplane accident. How can you be a devout Catholic? And Colbert said, well, that's a complete misunderstanding of God. You know, God doesn't prevent suffering. God's there to get you through the suffering. Um, God suffers with you so you can get through it. And when you feel that, and you feel that presence and that thing that's bigger than you, you can get through some pretty rough things. And uh, so it's not that God answers your prayers to be rich or whatever, or God takes away suffering. But when you need God, you feel something. So I'm so sorry, man. What a sorry, guys. Anyway, any final thought? Happy Easter, Xbox. <laughs> Pop culture, final thought. Daniel, you want to say anything? Um, yeah. Speaking of religion, I saw Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> nice. Did you see it in 4DX like I did? No, I saw your review of it, though, and I kind of regret it. Uh, it has all the people from Sonic in it and um, allegedly Jim Carrey's final performance. Idris Elba's in it, which is dope. He's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It's it was... Better than the first one, I guess, is the my review because it's goofy. Well, it, it's because it focused on the characters that were fun, which were like the cartoon characters and the bad guy. Other than that, like twenty minute section during the middle where they resolved the all of the humans, where they were no the part where they resolve all the human plots and just don't cut to any of the. There's like fifteen minutes where it's just like adults dealing with relationship stuff. And I'm like, why is this in the movie? It's over two hours and you could have cut out the human elements, but it also has this very homoerotic subplot that I wish they like leaned into more. I saw it in 40. I didn't have anything to talk about, so I'll just bank on. I saw it in 4DX, which I'd seen the first one in D-Box, which just vibrated the seat. But 4DX was nuts. They were playing it during the trailers and we got there a little late because it's like a multiplex. So we knew there's gonna be like 20 minutes of trailers but they were doing the seat moving during the trailer. So we're trying to sit down and our seats are like moving around like star tours. It was wild. I joked to my friends that I think maybe this is what Marty saw one of the Marvel movies in when he was like, all the Marvel (laughs) movies are are theme park rides. And it's like, Marty, they're not all like this. If you watch them at home, they don't do this. If that's his understanding is that they all do that, then I kind of agree with him. They should do a 4DX version of Bergman's persona. Yeah, that was the other joke I kept making. It's like, it'd be great to see, like, you know, let's see the Irishman in this <laughs> format. Uh, you could do Goodfellas where it leans forward every time there's camera movement and stuff. But yeah, and you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play uh, Tuesdays, twitch.tv slash Nerdhala D&D. Uh, I saw Police Story 1 and 2 at the Bev again. It was awesome. Great scene I've ever seen in my life. Saw it on 35. Would you say that movies are your god? Yeah, movies are my god. That's why I'm going to go pray in Burbank to uh, Hollywood Books and Posters. Also, highly recommend. Awesome. Lots of great stuff. It will empty your wallet for sure. My family went on a a small vacation. It was wonderful. I shouldn't say small. Any vacation. You're lucky to take it. We were. Uh, It was my wife, my mother-in-law, my swagra, and our kids. And and I loved it. I highly recommend everybody do some road tripping. It's rejuvenative. I know Daniel just came back from Italy. You sort of recharge, I think, mostly. My wife was very understanding. I was like, we got to go to Monument Valley. We're doing John Ford all year. I've never been to Monument Valley. We're in Arizona. And we got these cabins. I highly recommend that. They're called the View Cabins. And they're just above where Ford shot so many of his Westerns. And you wake up and you just see that view. But the weird thing is, I had sort of these realizations. One is, as beautiful as John Ford movies are, uh, and I love them, they don't begin to do justice to the awe you feel when you go into Monument Valley. It's like being on another planet. I've never experienced anything like it. The second thing tying into our spiritual thing for today is I sort of had this realization that those rock outcroppings almost feel like God's cathedrals, not cathedrals made by man. But you just look at nature made things and you almost feel more awe than and I felt on cathedral like I can't believe people took 50 years to build this it's incredible. But you go and you look at one of those rock outcroppings and you feel the cosmos. It's just such a weird landscape where it's all desert or whatever you want to call that, flat, 
and then these huge rock outcroppings that are look just like nature cosmos's cathedrals. And the last thing is Ford was a drinker. He was very had very conflicted, and everyone knows he was kind of an sob. He had his own issues. And the other thing I realized is when you get out there, you have nothing to do but admire nature and make things. You're like not in Hollywood. You're not in L.A. You can't really get into tons of trouble. And I was like, I bet he came out here to make all these movies to kind of sober up, to like reset and make something good and try again to like get over his demons. So it was being there and we went to John Ford Point. I shot a bunch of Super 8. I saved my black and white. I got a red filter, a 25A red filter, which is how, you know, Ford used to shoot a lot of his striking black and white in Orson Welles. And I metered it. I knew how to do it. And I go down into the valley and I heard John Ford's voice in my head. What's the first thing I have to shoot here? I kind of like, what do I have to get? And Ford famously said to someone one day when it was overcast and raining, Ford said, don't worry about it. We're going to shoot the most important and beautiful thing you can ever shoot, the human face. So I, the first thing I opened up on my black and white film was close-ups of my whole family. My wife, my mother-in-law, my little baby girl, Pammy, my daughter, Carmen, my son, Craig, with a little monument valley in the background. And those all came out. And then the moment I turned to get the beautiful landscape shots, the camera went, rawr, 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 and it died. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, And I still had like three, four minutes. I was like, what's the meaning of this? Why has the camera died? And I could only think of a few meanings. One was John Ford's ghost being like, no one shoots in this <laughs> valley but me. Boom, killed the camera. <laughs> Two was Ford being like, you have it. You got the most important thing. Three, Ford being like, hey, remember, life is vinegar and honey. You're not always going to get everything you want. You got the close-ups, but you didn't get the other thing. And that's good filmmaking. If all your movies have a little vinegar, a little honey, where it's like, hey, it never fully get, but it's never as bad as you think, but never as good as you think, you're getting close to existence. And then the fourth thing was there's no meaning, and I'm just trying to find meaning in the fact that my camera died. And I was like, ah, but there you go. That's my Monument Valley story. It's wonderful to have you guys. As always, this episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Podcast 103 is going to be about those cinematic series, we'll call them, where a certain story really grabbed people and then just new iterations of it get made like decade after decade. This is inspired by the fact that we're showing Evangelion, the week we're recording, but uh, Evangelion, which was a TV show in the 90s and then went on to have an afterlife that just, it appears, finally had its terminus uh, in 2021. So a 30-year, that, that could be Twin Peaks had the same kind of arc. That could be James Bond. It could be Zatoichi. Fritz Lang famously made like three Dr. Mabuza movies across 30 years. So people will return to stories. And Stephen King does that in novels. Star Wars, Connor had mentioned. Indiana Jones. I mean, uh, Marvel. You, you pick whatever. So we're going to talk about long-running uh, narrative cinematic series or documentaries. The 7-Up series. Michael Apted's documentary series has gone on for 50 years, 60 years. So that'll be episode 103. As always, find out about what we do on secretmovieclub.com. Uh, Write us at community at supermovieclub.com and go to Eventbrite to get tickets and find out about all our events. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye. Love you. Man.